Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. Today, my guest is Andrew Parks. He studied psychology and theology during his undergraduate tenure at Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. After graduating, he worked in residential treatment for four years, two as a direct care specialist, and two as a neurofeedback practitioner. We're going to find out what that is during the course of this interview. This had a profound impact on how he viewed the world, especially human nature. He is now an aspiring author and entrepreneur seeking to have a positive impact on the people around him. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Andrew Parks. <laughs> Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. Well, first and foremost, what is a neurofeedback practitioner? Uh, good question. Um, neurofeedback is a specialized form of biofeedback. Um, and biofeedback is uh, basically a process where, uh, where by monitoring um, automatic bodily functions, you can train people to acquire voluntary control of that function, such as heart rate or breathing, different things like that. Now, neurofeedback specifically is a subconscious process. So the person that's being trained is not necessarily acquiring voluntary control, um, but it's a way to train brainwave frequencies to encourage them into more normative areas of function. Uh, so we did things like cure ADHD or depression, OCD, Probably the most dramatic thing that I saw was someone who had uh, what's called spike wave activity or micro seizures in a per particular part of her brain. Uh, we saw those things decrease by a measure of over 80%. And so we, it was a lot of really cool stuff. It, it made me into a neuroscience nerd, but I mean, I am by far, I am in no means any sort of expert on the topic. It's just something I really love. And uh, some of the core um, functions of the brain really affected kind of the way that I view um, how people work and stuff like that. So how did that change the way you view human nature? There is a, a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score by a researcher named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. It's kind of the seminal work on trauma from a psychological standpoint uh, out today. It's informed a lot of current research and practices, but the way that it all affected me, there's a few things. So one thing that I learned is that the brain is what we would call plastic or malleable. Now, when you're a young child, a toddler, an infant, that plasticity is extremely high. It's basically the ability to learn very quickly. And as you get older, that plasticity kind of levels out, but it never really goes away. And so through neurofeedback and other forms of neurotherapy uh, interventions, you can enhance that plasticity to help the brain kind of reorient itself and to learn new skills, to differentiate between different states and things like that. And that ability to change is how we grow and develop as human beings. Now, the individuals that I worked with for several years experienced what we would call developmental trauma. And that is complex trauma or repetitive traumatic events happening within the developmental window. And the developmental window is in utero up to about five or six years old. So even things like fetal alcohol syndrome and stuff like that is considered developmental trauma because it's affecting the development of the individual. Now, a lot of the time what can happen with children is when they go through this, they get stuck. Their development stalls. They're unable to really grow. There were several individuals I worked with that as soon as we started engaging the plasticity of their brain, their frequencies wouldn't go where we expected them to go because it was like we were jump-starting a three-year-old or a four-year-old brain to start growing again. 
And so it would create a lot of co- uh, a lot of um, chaos or disorder. And then over time, because the brain was now able to change itself more effectively, you would see order come back. The brain would reorder itself, which is what our brain is made to do. Now, in terms of human nature, a metaphor for this is it started to make me think that it, it made me think of like the wounded dog that bites the hand trying to help it. Because it's in pain, it doesn't know what's coming and it's trying to protect itself. Human beings, we are in a sense animals and it is our awareness, it is our creativity, it is our intelligence that separates us from animals. We're not run on instinct to the degree that, uh, you know, uh, a wolf is or a chimpanzee is or anything like that. So I started to realize that we inherently don't like what people have termed as like depravity or a sinful nature to me is more of a survival instinct and survival instincts are not intellectually informed. They're gut intuitive things. That's kind of like what's hardwired into us. And with human nature, whenever we're born, we're already dealing with all of these instincts and drives and impulses If you add abuse and trauma to that, you're simply reinforcing that over and over and over and over. And so I started to think of a sinful nature, not as this inherent evil thing, but rather an almost inherent woundedness or a captivity to instinct and started to think like, okay, maybe people really aren't evil the way that I was raised to think we were evil, but we're wounded and we can't trust. And then I, you know, and that goes into thinking about faith is trust and all these other things. And that really informed my faith. And here's the very interesting thing. In the world of neuroplasticity, when someone is feeling anger or aggression or anxiety and fear, their plasticity goes way down. One of my jobs, like one of the things that my director really emphasized during my time as a practitioner was you have to do everything you can to make the client feel relaxed. Because if they don't feel relaxed, their plasticity goes away. Their guard is up. And so helping them relax encourages plasticity. And it, and there was a moment where I realized or not realized, remembered the verse that said, um, perfect love casts out all fear. And I started to think, oh my goodness, fear literally in the brain's chemistry, fear inhibits transformation. It inhibits growth. It inhibits change. But love and security actually give a more viable platform for transformation and change. And I found that very interesting that the mystic John from 2000 years ago is saying something that we are confirming via science in the modern era and started to think, right? Isn't that just blows my mind. And then it suddenly like this thing that I thought was just pansy love and just didn't really care about became so much more like, oh, this is really important. Like this is kind of how we evolve, transform, grow, whatever word you want to use. And yeah, so that's kind of how it kind of changed my view of human nature. Wow, that is incredible. You mentioned faith a minute ago. What faith, if any, were you raised with? 
Yeah, I was raised in kind of a mixture of charismatic and Pentecostal churches. I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which for charismatics is kind of one of the uh, central hubs. Uh, you have Oral Roberts University. You have a lot of really big mega churches out there, like the Victory Bible Institute that Billy Joe Doherty started and a bunch of other things that just kind of go all over the world. It's kind of one of the central points for charismatics. But then whenever I was, how old was I? I think around like... Yeah, I was about eight years old. I was just about to turn eight years old in 97. We started going to an Assemblies of God church in Nixon, Missouri. We'd moved by that point. And I spent 14 years at that church. And that kind of really informed the way that I thought things like, you know, uh, I was raised with no notion of eternal security, which was funny because later I found out that my mom was, and she just didn't even think about having to transmit that to me. She just thought I would have inherently known it. So there was that. And also, too, um, my mom uh, was was raised as part of like a large Mennonite family, and they were all involved in the charismatic renewal in the 70s. And so when I would go visit my grandparents, I would get like kind of a taste of Mennonite culture and Mennonite theology, not old order. It's not we weren't wearing the hats and riding in the back of vans. We, you know, it was all very like it was basically like Baptists who believed in pacifism. That's kind of how I put it with a little bit of high church flavor. But so I got like little bits of taste of that, but I didn't really explore that until later. But yeah, that was kind of what I was raised with probably about, oh, actually about 11 years ago. Actually, I had a moment where God kind of became real to me. And I, that was kind of, it was like May of 2008. And that was kind of when I started taking my faith by the wheel, if that makes sense. Yeah. So taking ownership of your faith, what did that look like for you? Uh, that's a good question. I started really thinking about what I was doing. It wasn't just, the, it, it was no longer the faith of my mother. It was my faith. And so where I'd kind of just gone along on my own for kind of just going with the flow and just believing everything because I trusted authority and all that kind of stuff. I, I started really like looking into things and thinking about things. I had a moment, I just told, it's funny, I just told this story to a friend the other day, but I had a moment that same year when my faith became real to me again, where I was sitting in church and I was being an arrogant little prick and getting very frustrated with my pastor and his, uh, what I perceived as an inability to teach. And one day he, he asked us to turn to, uh, like, I think it was first John and I misheard the chapter he said. And so I flipped to like, uh, chapter two and he was in chapter four or something like that. And I looked down and started reading it and God really highlighted the passage and was like, here, I want you to read this. And so I started reading it. It was just a good Sunday. And at the end of it, God kind of got in my face and he goes, Andrew, Listen to me anywhere you are. Don't try to interpret or decode everything else. Just listen to me and be open to me and you'll hear what you need to hear. You don't have to be frustrated with what you're being fed. Learn to eat on your own. And that was kind of the beginning of where I've come to now in terms of just, I really believe that there is no mediator between me and God. That's what Jesus came to establish. And, and to reveal, not even just establish, but to reveal the truth that had been there all along. And uh, so that's kind of by taking my faith by the wheel, that's kind of what I mean in that sense. Gotcha. I know you, you said that you've, you've had more um, evolution of your faith in the last year or two. Mm -hmm. what, what has that done for your faith? How has that changed you? <laughs> oh, man. It transformed my inner world like I couldn't believe. And what I mean is I've known God since I was three, three years old. I remember being three years old in my parents' bedroom, accepting Christ into my heart. 
You know, I, the only thing I really remember is that the blanket on the bed was blue, but I remember that day. And here's the thing. I, I accept Christ when I'm three years old. When I'm six years old, I have a distinct memory of raising my hand to rededicate my life because as a six-year-old, I'd so slipped into debauchery that I needed to rededicate myself to the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. Yeah. And that cycle of guilt and shame was what I thought religion was. Yeah. And I just went through that again and again and again and again. And without getting into all the nitty gritty, I, I starting in about the middle of 2015 or the spring of 2015, I began a three-year period of just incredible suffering, multiple deaths in my family, a lot of pain and dysfunction in my family, and also like in the midst of a, of a relationship that wasn't serving me or the other person. And it was there was just lots of pain and lots of things going on. And my self-hatred that I'd always had because I've been told that who I was was gross, but God loved me anyway, was everywhere. And in the last two years, I, you know, the first the first year of those two years was the kind of the classic cliche deconstruction. I won't get into that. There's plenty of stories about that anywhere you look these days. But I mean, I went through it. I, you know, the best little uh, moment to define my deconstruction would be in the middle of it all. I prayed to God and I said, God, I don't want to believe in you anymore. Make me stop believing in you, which I find hilariously ironic now. (laughs) And it's like, I just picture God like tilting his head like a dog when it's confused, like, wait, what? And (laughs) I had a moment, I had a friend who was a safe space for me for a long time. He lived uh, hundreds of miles away from me, but we would talk on the phone for literally hours a day for at least eight months. And um, he was this safe space. And one day, even though I didn't want it, he sent me this sermon and he said, hey, like as a friend, I'm asking you to watch this. And I only did it because at that point, the only thing I cared about was my family and my friends. And it was the only thing really keeping me alive. Uh, And I mean that very literally. And I said, okay, for you, I'll do it. And uh, I got to the point where I finally like listened to this sermon and the sermon talked about what Paul calls the mystery of the ages revealed in Colossians 1, that Christ is in us and this is the hope of glory. And this guy talked about that we are one with Christ, that if we want to submit ourselves to the powers of this day and to this age, we can, but we don't have to. That we have been given full, unbridled access to the heart of the Father. That that oneness with Christ can define the entirety of our lives. For some reason, I really connected, even though for literally like a year or a year and a half, I just spit in the face of any sort of teaching. I didn't want to hear anything that had to do with Jesus or the Bible or anything like that. It had a profound effect. The day after I listened to it, I started thinking about, well, Christ's mind isn't depressed. And Paul says I have the mind of Christ, so maybe I'm not supposed to be depressed. And no fireworks, nothing showy, just uh, there was, I wasn't doing anything but just laying in bed. And from one moment to the next, my depression just kind of disappeared. It was almost like God gave me permission to love myself. And from then on, that transformed my inner life. And now I'm to the point a year later where because my inner life is so rich and healthy and vibrant for the first time in my life with any consistency, because I had moments like I'd ride the wave of joy or the wave of happiness or whatever it was for a month or two months or sometimes a year. It was never like this. 
now I'm starting to affect things in my outer life, in my uh, day-to-day, like self-discipline and all these other things that I, I just never was able to do before. Yeah, that's been uh, that's been incredible. And it's also given me the ability now to realize all of this stuff I used to think was so important really isn't important. The last thing I'll say on this is I feel like for most of my life, I was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I was trying to figure out what's the best thing to do, what's the worst thing to do, and I was ignoring every other tree in the garden, and it was killing me. And in the last year, I stopped eating from that tree. Anytime I sense myself going back to that, I'm just like, nope, and I just I just won't do it. That's a really mythological way to put it, but it's the it's kind of the best way I know how without rambling for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it is a powerful transformation that takes place when we make a conscious decision to at least try to stop eating from the do-to-be tree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's almost like we stop shooting all over ourselves, you know, just, uh, <laughs> right? I mean... <laughs> That's great. Because our whole life is, well, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. And it's almost like once that takes a back seat, the tree of life can flourish in your life again. And it's it's a powerful thing. So, yeah. man, I, I have been so impressed, Andrew, with your interactions on Facebook. We're Facebook friends. And, and as I've said in a previous episode, Facebook can be a zoo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just an absolute zoo. But there are some really bright lights on on social media. And for me, you're one of them. And just the way you interact with people and, and the way you respond, uh, it's such a bright light on social media for me. You sent me a piece that you had written about loving our enemies. Uh, would you mind reading that for the listeners today? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I titled it, Love My Enemy. Real, real original. God isn't yours alone. God is above all tribes, all peoples, all civilizations. No matter behavior or intent, God claims all, God loves all. God stands with your enemy. Remember this the next time your anger or hatred seeks to rise up and provoke you to destruction of another. Jesus knew the wild history of Jewish occupation. The Philistines, the Babylonians, the Romans had all besmirched that which the Jews held as sacred. Yet Jesus said, love your enemy. Jesus was more inspired by the faith of a Roman occupier than he was with his own people's faith. This is why he wept for them time and time again. In the same day, in the same way, I weep for myself. So often I have agreed with hatred, with destruction, with death, and I see my people, my American people, doing the same. I hide in my home and my phone, my self-constructed echo chambers, forgetting that other people aren't like me. Too often I've sought to conform others to my own image, despite knowing that apart from communion with the God of my enemies, my image is broken and marred. The only enemy I must fight is the shadow of myself. The me that seeks to be better than others. The me that seeks to put others down. The me that trembles with cowardice whenever I have the chance to truly love. The funniest part? Jesus whispers to me again in considering the enemy of myself, quote, love your enemies. Only true love will heal the world. Only vulnerability and risk in love will win the future we all truly want. As I love myself, I will see the shadow of myself dissolve in the light of love. Wow. That is so powerful. Can you give us a glimpse into the backstory behind that piece? Where did that originate in you? I I had gone to pick up a friend of mine from work and was got there early and was in the car just kind of communing with God and had a very mystical moment. And that piece is kind of the result of that moment. I, 
I really feel like that was a divine, like I was divinely helped to organize those ideas into that little piece because I had thought about all those sorts of things and wrestled with that. And that was kind of what I was going through because I wrote this last December and I was really in the place of working myself through self-acceptance. And I was finding that the more I loved myself, the easier it was to love the people around me. And it just kind of the way my mind works, it just kind of put all these things together and in order. And I wrote that out. And, you know, being raised with kind of a, a bit of a Mennonite background on my mom's side, I'd heard things about pacifism and heard things about that. And I'd kind of actually engaged with that uh, when I was much younger, about nine or 10 years ago, and kind of went away from it, not really being changed, but kind of feeling like there was some Thing there I didn't understand. So there was probably a little bit of that playing into my ideas. But yeah, I, I kind of came to it organically through just realizing if I can love myself, I can love anybody. Gotcha. Why do you think enemy love is so central to the gospel? Because it is the outward expression of the inward subversion of our sinful self. The gospel of Jesus is not, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. The gospel of Jesus is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means two things. It means turn around and rethink. And I think Jesus means both of those things in his use of that word. And so Jesus is speaking to a people who have been oppressed and weighed down by the religious elite and by the politically elite in their culture. They have been told that they are not enough. They have been told that they've got to do all these things if they're going to be good enough. They have been told a panoply of lies that seek to control and bind them to the use of the powerful. Jesus comes and he says, no, 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 no. You need to turn away from this kind of thinking. You need to turn around and realize that you yourself can reach the kingdom of heaven right where you stand. The only reason classism exists, in my opinion, is because people are trying to control other people. God wants us to be free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God wants us to live in a world where the lion lies down with the lamb. You know, in our culture, those in power, you could say they're kind of like lions. You know, they are strong and powerful and people look up to them. But then you have lambs and it's like, well, we're going to let the lions be in power. We're going to let the lamb kind of do their own thing. Maybe a couple lambs can be like an artist that we pay lip service to or just whatever it is, you know. In this prophetic vision that you see all over the Old and New Testament, you have this image of the valleys being brought up and the mountains being brought low and this kind of equal playing field or equal viewing of all people being given. Going back to what I talked about earlier about sinfulness versus woundedness, if what we interpret as sinful destructive action is coming from a place of woundedness rather than a place of intentional malice or evil, then we should be loving those that hurt us because they're the ones that are hurting the most. An adage that I really love is hurt people, hurt people, loved people, love people. And so that to me is why enemy love is so crucial because love provides a safe space for transformation. Not everyone's going to transform when we want them to transform. But if, if the father through Jesus tells us to forgive over and over and over, expecting nothing back, then that's two things. I think that is an imperative that we're not supposed to get recompense in order to forgive. But we also have to realize that's who God is. And the way that I was transformed, the way that my life actually changed was never once through a fearful, angry attack from my father. 
my father has been firm with me. He has been, hey, what are you doing? But he has never been, you nasty, dirty piece of crap, get your act together and then come see me. It's never been like that. I don't think you can really make a case for that scripturally either, only if you're looking for it. And that goes back kind of to, you know, Jesus saying, seek and you will find. If you're looking for that, you're going to find it. But I don't want to look for that. And so in that enemy love is, is central because it's what happened to us. So we're supposed to give what we've received. You know, that's kind of it. Why do you think we're so naturally opposed to Jesus' call to love our enemies? It seems like it's almost our default setting to reject it. I think that goes back to our animalistic nature. So one of the projects that I want to eventually work out and articulate completely, I've actually talked with uh, our mutual friend Seth Price about this, um, but I, I want to write about how what we've termed and connotated as sinful nature is probably better termed as animalistic nature. Because if we look at nature and we look at the way animals act, I, I really don't care what people think about evolution versus creation and all that stuff. I think it's honestly, it's a false dichotomy and it's a stupid debate. And we really need to stop trying to prove that there was magic 6,000 years ago and we just need to try to love each other now. But whether or not you're a young earth creationist or you accept the current science narrative of billions of years of evolution, no matter what, people act like animals and we run on instinct. We act like the wounded dog. And I, I really believe that our animalistic nature, which is what I think God pulled us out of, that's kind of what the garden story to me is about, is him giving us the gift of creativity and consciousness is why we still resist. It's almost like we're in this, it's almost like that age old talk of like the battle between your sin nature and your new nature is really just getting over animalistic habits to really surrender because an animal will never surrender. An animal is always interested in survival, not in thriving, not in progress, but just getting enough to stay alive today. And Jesus in his prayer that he teaches the disciples, give me this day, my daily bread. He, he subverts that right there. He says, this is what you need to give to God. You need to give this away every day. Your fear of surviving today and your fear of having enough today, you need to let God do that because he clothes the sparrows and he feeds the birds. He does all, if the grass and the, and the flowers of the field are as beautiful as they are and the sparrow can eat every day, how much more will he take care of you? And I feel like there's this sense in which we are constantly clenching and holding on to our life and we're trying to control our life. And God is saying, be still, let go and know that I am God. And so I feel like that's the resistance to enemy love is because trusting another person is probably the scariest thing that anyone can do. That's why we go to therapy for it. That's why I went to therapy for years. Uh, I still wrestle. I mean, I can talk a good game, but I, I struggle on the regular with relational paranoia and thinking people are out to get me. And maybe some of them are, but I don't think most of them are. And I think it's that fear of others that engenders a continued separation. And the thing is, those are useful skills. Like think of when we were hunter gatherers and we were nomads, you've got to be on the lookout for the next danger and the next big thing that could hurt you. It makes sense. Now, though, we have the 
potential. And I know this kind of sounds pie in the sky, you know, utopian, idealistic. I am a bit of an idealist, but I'm a hopeful idealist in that we could, we have the platform, we have the the raw materials to make a better world for ourselves. But because of our inherent distrust of the other, we don't want to do it. Jesus is the prime example. The cross is the prime example of this enemy love because Jesus, who reveals the Father in every word and action, gets lets himself be murdered. When according to our Christology, he could have called down all the powers of the universe to smite those in front of him, but he didn't. And so, you know, as, uh, as Thomas Ord says, God is a God of uncontrolling love. And it's revealed through Jesus where his love, he be, God believes because he is love. God knows the power of love to the point that it will overcome even death. You know, the power of the cross is that the cross isn't just some nice payment for our sins so God doesn't take vengeance on us. That's a whole nother topic, penal substitution and all that. I'm not even going to go there. But the cross is much more than that. The cross is God revealing that is revealing that even if we pay the greatest evil, the wages of sin is death. The wages of not connecting with God, of not communing with God is death. Even if we use the greatest evil we have, death, love will defeat it. Because that's what we did. We paid out to Jesus the greatest form of evil that we had. And three days later, he was like, that wasn't really worth much, was it? And came walking out of that tomb. That's what I, so in that, it's like, if Jesus can inflate the economy of death to such a degree with his simple acceptance and love of those attempting to murder him, those who successfully murdered him, how much more can we be the little Christs that we're called to be by loving those who want to hurt us and by trusting those who want to hurt us? common objection to enemy love is, well, you know, there are people living in their animalistic nature today and they want to kill us. Mm -hmm. So how far do we take this? How far do we take enemy love? How do we respond to the home intruder or to the invading army? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question that I still wrestle with. Having a a heritage uh, in the Mennonite uh, fellowship on one side of my family, I have heard a lot of what I consider to be really dumb arguments um, for complete pacifism. I'll verbally process this, but I'm I'm going to disclaim it by saying I don't know if this is where I'll land, you know, uh, uh, a year or even a week from now. But I don't believe that God is aggressively violent. I do think that God can defend you. And so in this, let's just take the home intruder thought experiment for a second. If a home intruder comes into my house and is going to attack me or my family... Let's say that I let them do that. That's not really a loving action because if they do that, if they get caught, then they're going to suffer the consequences for it. If they don't get caught, they're going to have to deal with that. And if they, you know, maybe they're a sociopath, maybe they won't deal with the guilt or shame or whatever, and that's possible. But regardless, if I can stop them, I don't, it doesn't mean I have to kill them. Uh, Not everyone can do that. Some people might only have a gun and know, uh, like, I'm a very large guy. I'm 6'3", 280 pounds, and and I wrestled with my farm-grown cousins growing up. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not exactly a pushover. And so I'm someone that might be able to take them down and subdue them if I had the chance. Maybe not. If they had a gun on me, there's probably nothing I could do and kind of stuff like that. And if they're only going to rob me, I'll just let them rob me. I, I do think we can defend ourselves, but... 
I really, really struggle with the idea of reciprocal violence, meaning tit for tat. I'm okay with in the moment subduing someone to stop them because maybe they'll see the error of their ways in that moment. Maybe they won't. But I'm not okay with they hurt me, so I'm going to go hurt them. That's kind of where I go with that kind of stuff. So it, it, it is a hard question. And I, I think, too, there isn't a hard and fast answer for it either. Because also, too, part of that question and part of that answer depends on what do you think happens when we die? Where I used to be 10 years ago when I wrestled with this question, thinking about, because uh, I was a very staunch, like, heaven is heaven and hell is hell and hell is eternal t- conscious torment and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to let them kill me because I want them to have the chance to go to heaven because I'm going to go to heaven. Now I view those things very differently. I, I might have a perspective that maybe Gregory of Nyssa would have had in the early church that hell and some of the other church fathers, that hell is much less of a punitive torture chamber and much more of a rehabilitation center. But again, that's uh, another topic I won't uh, rabbit trail down. But if how we think about what happens when we die and the nature of death really does affect that question too, I think it's easier to love others whenever you truly feel like death has lost its sting, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. You know, um, I think I first started wrestling with the whole love your enemies line from Jesus in the aftermath of September 11th. Hmm. I was... Gee, I was 24 years old, and I remember feeling so afraid, but that fear gave way to anger. I remember George W. Bush visiting New York City at Ground Zero and taking the bullhorn and talking about the fact that the people who had knocked the buildings down would be hearing from all of us soon. And something within me roared at that. And, and, and roared in approval, like, yes, let's get them. Mm. You know, totally forgetting for a moment that the people who knocked down the buildings died there. Hmm. But we were going to go get vengeance. We were going to make sure no one could ever do this to us again. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I, I don't hear audible voices from God, but I felt like God was saying that his heart was broken at the carnage that had taken place on that day. But that those men and women that we were about to kill in vengeance, those were his sons and daughters too. Hmm. And that began to weave its way into my spirit in a way that I couldn't look at things the same way anymore. I think I always had this idea that we were, you know, the new Israel. We were God's people. And we were always on the side of what was right. And God would always be for us against our enemies. It was a very tribal mindset. And I think that day, God began to tell a different story in my spirit. You know, he's the father of all, and he loves us all. And and while we do some terrible things to one another, this idea of vengeance really doesn't have place in his kingdom. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, of course. Um, can I respond to that real quick? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I love that you said vengeance has no place in his kingdom. There is the, there's the, I forget which... Uh, prophetic text it's in, but it's where uh, Yahweh says, vengeance is mine, right? And I've entertained this thought in the last year that God said, vengeance is mine because humans don't know what to do with vengeance. And that the vengeance of of humans is to repay evil with evil. And the vengeance of God is to repay evil with good. For such a long time, I believe justice was payback. And 
It's not. This is a hill I'll die on for the rest of my days. Justice is reconciliation of the created order to its creator. And every person, every atom, every molecule that you see is part of the created order. Everything. God is God is in all things. Not God is all things. I'm not being pantheistic here. Like Jesus says, if your eyes are full of darkness, your whole body or your, your whole being is full of darkness. And if your eyes are full of light, then your whole being is full of light. Um, I've heard people talk about that and they preached it as, you know, you become like what you behold. And that's true. If you worship an angry, vengeful version of Yahweh, you're going to wrestle with being angry and vengeful. But also, I really believe that how we see the world is the beginning of how we redeem the world. This is not a, a, a mathematical Per, a mathematically perfect analogy. But when you get into a lot of the mysteries of quantum mechanics, you know, you have things about how an observer has an effect on the atomic structure of things. Like, uh, that's why we can observe light as both a particle and a wave. There's a, just a lot of interesting stuff there. And I just find it very interesting that as we discover more about the, the base nature of reality in quantum physics and quantum mechanics, that these mystical ideas are kind of related. Not perfectly. It's not a perfect analogy. But if I look at the world with love, if I'm looking for love, I'm going to find it. Too often we're looking for our own security. We're looking for our own vengeance. We're looking for whatever. The interesting thing is if we look for it, we generally find it. Except that most of the time I think that when we find what we've been looking for, we find it to be wanting. Finally, Andrew, what does Jesus' call to love our enemies teach us about the character of God, and what does it teach us about ourselves? <laughs> uh, next episode. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, I kind of alluded to it earlier when I talked about the cross. It, what it teaches us about God is that God loves everyone. I really believe that it's a it's a it's an imperative from Jesus because uh, when we love our enemies we kind of discover that they're not our enemies. I am a very big proponent of that right there. I really don't have enemies. I have people who have hurt me. I even have people I don't trust. I have people that I struggle to forgive or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, very, very rarely do you have people doing horrendous acts from a petty, malicious mindset. That does happen. Like, let's, you know, let's take the common, uh, commonly referred to event of the Holocaust. That was a pretty horrible, horrible thing, right? And that was something that was premeditated. But why was it premeditated? Because if God is who Jesus says he is, God loves Hitler as much as he loves the Jews. Right. Yes. God loves the Nazis as much as he loves the Jews. And this is the problem that I see right now that's being stirred up by just the, pol the polarity in our media culture, all this division, is that you have people like myself who deconstruct, who leave kind of the faith they were raised in to an extent. But then as soon as they leave one camp or leave one tribe, they run to another. And God is calling us out of every tribe to his tribe. That's why in Christ there is no Jew or Greek there is no male or female. It's not talking about you can't identify as one of those things. It's saying that that identity is supposed to be subservient. It's like it's, it's literally a form of cosmic patriotism. 
if I'm going to love, I, I need to love, I need to love the oppressed and I need to love the oppressor. Now, who do I defend? I defend the oppressed, but it doesn't mean I try to destroy the oppressor through normative means. It means I try to subvert them through my enemy love. It means that I will stand with them no matter what. I, I have a friend of mine who I've known for many years, and very sadly, in the last two years, he has come out as a white supremacist to me. It is extraordinarily difficult. He has lost a lot of friends because of that. But God was like, not God. It wasn't even a God thing. It's just I knew that I wasn't supposed to reject him. And I've been very blunt with him. I've told him why I think he's wrong. I've been very upfront. He knows what I think. He knows I think his belief system and his actions are wrong. And he's not someone who has gone out and hurt anyone like that. It's simply his belief. If he had done that, I would report him. If you know, if he told me that, I would disclose that kind of a thing because that's a way to love him. But it really, really, it's difficult. But that's who we're called to be. And the thing is, there, there's no, like, if, if someone isn't in a place to do that, that's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be what we think is perfect. Get away from the tree of woulds and shoulds. Get away from that. Be who you are right now and trust that you are being formed and you are growing. We are every single person you see is a leaf on the tree that is God. He is the vine and we are the branches. Some of the branches are dying because they don't know from whence they come. But the father will come and prune those branches so that they can grow. He will cut off the infected, broken parts of the vine so that it can grow and flourish. He's the the vine dresser. We're not. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. We just got to eat the grass in front of us. And sometimes that means we make mistakes. Sometimes that means we say things that later we're like, I wish I hadn't said that. But it's okay because God will do the work. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on here today and talking to us about this subject. Uh, there's something so subversive about loving our enemies, and God takes it to the furthest degree possible. As you said, you know, the wages of sin are death. And when I think about that verse, I always think of a lamb sacrifice or some turtle doves or a bull or, you know, me roasting in hell for eternity for my sins. But Jesus subverts it to the point that when we find the death being carried out, the punishment of God's enemies being carried out, where do we find God? We find him dying on a cross because the death that is paid is his. It's incredible and it's mind-blowing. And I appreciate you spending your time today talking to us about it. Uh, you've raised several other issues here today that I'd love to explore further. So I hope you'll come back and uh, we'll, do, we'll do a few more of these if that sounds good to you. It'd be my pleasure. I, it's great. Maybe we can get some more actual dialogue. I kind of felt like I was monologuing too often. <laughs> no, no, I think it was fantastic. What projects are you working on now and how can people engage with you online? I am working on some writing. Um, I would like to have a book finished or at least a rough draft done um, in the next year and a half. I'm working really heavy on the business. And so once I can kind of take my hands off of those reins, I'll be doing that more. So I'm working on that and working on some other things. If folks want to engage with me, they can uh, on Twitter, they can um, follow me at turn or, or sojourn. That's my tag. <laughs> it's just my play on Turner Burn. Uh, let's see. What is, and Facebook is just facebook.com slash Richard Andrew Clancy Parks. I don't post as much as I normally, as I used to, <laughs> kind of 
got off my own high horse for a while, but if anyone would like to connect with me, they, they certainly can there. Um, I'm actually thinking about in the meantime, until I have a book to present, um, starting a, an actual blog and I'll probably be posting links to that on both, um, both of my social media tags. Awesome. Andrew, thank you again so much for your time today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, sure. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. 